Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini. And Jen, what's up? I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't know. We just had a great interview with a woman who I consider to be just a mega talent and a hero, Claire Dieterer. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I don't know about you, but like halfway through, I was like, am I doing okay? Like I just <laughs> No, we were both at the end, Jen was just like, we were both a bit off, sorry. But I think the interview, because Claire is so great, is actually perfectly fine and you'll learn a lot from it. And she's just so cool. She's just so cool and so nice and so fucking smart. I know this, her, her new book, Monsters of Fans Dilemma is so smart. And like, she just, she straddles just this line that I think it would be almost impossible for anyone else to straddle because she's talking about things that like nobody really wants to, like, it's so hard to talk about, like canceling, like terrible men, monster, monsters, like monster artists anyway. And she's just, it's, it's all handled with a very deft hand. Um, I don't know this morning I was, I was trying to do some yoga and I was like bitterly doing yoga. You know, sometimes you're doing exercise. <laughs> I was like, I should do this, should eat the spinach, you know, (laughs) like, and Mm -hmm. I was just in the middle of it. And I was like, oh God, I gotta, I gotta do a million things today. So much shit on the to-do list. And I was like, when does it end? When does it end? Like, I was like, I'm not up for this pace anymore of living. You go. Yeah. No, (laughs) you go. (laughs) You're leaving me with that. Well, I I, I don't know how to answer that, but I had something really nice happen over the weekend. Oh, you talk about something nice. I'm just bitching. You go. No, that, well, we'll see what they enjoy more. Um, I, you know, the nicest thing about having, getting married and having the wedding, you know, a a piece about the one run in the times is that I heard from all these people, just random people from my past. And I heard from my friend, Jonathan, who I worked with at my first job in New York and who's gone on to have a very successful career as a writer. And we just fell out of touch at some point, but I've always been very fond of him. And we talked on the phone for like over an hour on Sunday. Wow. Wow. Which was so, it was so amazing and so nice and such a connection to like, it, it just, there's nothing like the people, even if you've been out of touch with them for a while, the people who knew you back yeah. then, you yeah. know, and know your stories. And, you know, I, it, it reminded me of like, you know, the time when I was working at Seven Days, that was the the publication I worked at where Jonathan worked and, and the stuff we did together. And he was like, you know, the first time I ever went out to Brooklyn, I was with you. Wow. To a party. And it was just like, oh, yeah, like this person, this person was important at a point in my life. And it's kind of an important person to me. Yeah. And it was it was just so lovely. And, you know, I think he felt, you know, as I I have and we've talked endlessly about like, you know, the attrition of friends that happens when you're in your 40s and 50s and taking it really personally. And I was like, dude, it just it, it, it it's our age. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. But it feels, but it feels so divine to get back in touch with somebody it, it, and to have it be so mutual and feel like, you know, maybe we're not going to be best, best friends now, but we're, we're making an, a, a decision to be in each other's lives again. That touch, that kind of touch point in your life, that sort of, it's so grounding and it just mm-hmm. feels, it almost feels like exhilarating. Like, I don't remember when I had a phone call that was that long, you know, maybe with my mom, maybe with my mom, maybe if I'm doing like a long catch up where I'm going through a bunch of things with my mom, but like for the most part, I don't have hour long phone calls with anyone. That's no, who does that anymore? It was, it was such a luxurious thing to do. You know, it was, it just, it was so great. You know, it's so funny because it does it does feel like like the ground is slipping away to some degree. Like I've been thinking a lot about the writer's strike, like the environment where you met this person and where you meant so much to each other was in a, a news a newsroom kind of situation where, you know, everybody's working together, bouncing ideas off each other, you know, bitching about the boss, all of that. And I've been thinking a lot about how we're living in the aftermath of a media boom. And those jobs were so pleasurable and people don't have those experiences anymore. Like young reporters, young writers, young editors don't have that collective experience. They're all like half remote work, hybrid work. Yeah, It's just, it's, everything's kind of changing. It's really, it's, it's really strange. Do you think we'll look back on this time as a time of greater change than we realize it is now? Yes. I think, I mean, look, I think the internet, right. But we were, but I, I had gotten into work just as the internet, just as sort of the digital age was coming. Right. But I think this moment, this like post COVID AI moment, it just feels so different. I can really see how old people like, you know, much older than us people are just like, when they started checking out of stuff, this is when I'm just like, Oh God, where are we? What are we doing? What's happening? And like, it feels so fucked up to me. Well, because the AI stuff is really, really, really fucked up. Yeah. It's really, and, and you don't get the feeling that there are like, you know, level heads, you know, directing this thing. No. no, the people directing this thing are the people who want to stop paying writers and artists and musicians. It's just, you know, I, well, first off two things. Number one, the, um, the writers guild, if you saw their list of demands, one of the things they said was, you know, we would like shows to not be written by AI, right? Like very reasonable, like, and the, the counter was, we will give you one meeting a year about new technology. Like, fuck you. No, amazing. Horrible. But AI does not work correctly. Like I was thinking about how the Wordle bot, because I do Wordle every day, and you can do like this thing with Wordle bot where they tell you how you scored on each, you know, each guess. Mm-hmm. And the Wordle bot is so stupid. And I guess I take it personally, even though I know it's a robot, I'm like, you know, the Wordle bot will be like, this guess wasn't my favorite. This would have been a better one. And I'm like, that wouldn't have been a better one. Did you see the clues, Wordle bot? The AI doesn't work correctly. <laughs> Well, I know, and and there is a lot. I, I think that you know, Paul Paul fed some of my writing into a Wordle oh, thing wow. to see how it would do an with AI my thing, writing. An AI it would, thing, yeah, and it was it was horrible. It, it wasn't anywhere near. But it's only a matter of time before it gets really good. I just don't understand. Look, look, I shouldn't even be talking about this because I'm an ignoramus, ignoramus, whatever I am. I Me am too. an ignorant bitch, and I don't know enough about it. But it just seems fucked up to me. And I'm like, who thinks this is a good idea? Well, who can't look forward and see that perhaps this won't end well, you know? Right. You just put this AI into a robot and then we're just like, we're just doomed. (laughs) No, I know. I know. It's, it's, should we get into the show? Oh yeah. Should we just, Hey, Hey, sorry, Claire for this setup. (laughs) 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 Let's get into the show. Our guest today is Claire Dieterer. Claire is a memoirist, essayist, and critic. Her books include the critically acclaimed Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning, as well as Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses, which was a New York Times bestseller. Claire is a longtime contributor to the New York Times, and her essays, criticism, and reviews have also appeared in the Paris Review, The Atlantic, The Nation, Vogue, Marie Claire, Elle, New York Magazine, and many other publications. 
Claire's highly anticipated new book, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, investigates good art made by bad people, and it recently hit the bestseller list and sprung from her globally viral 2017 essay for the Paris Review, which was titled, What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men? Welcome, Claire. Hello, you two. Hi. Um, we all have really long hair. We could see each other in the Zoom and we all have really long hair right now, which is an odd thing for women in middle age. I feel like everybody cuts their hair off. Well, you know, Andrea Lynette, our friend Andrea Lynette believes that as long as you've got good hair, as long as your hair can do it, you should have it be long as long as you want. That's sort of my theory. And also I feel like because so few people have it, it becomes just this sort of distinctive thing that you can do without like really thinking about it very much. It's like, okay, long hair. That's my thing. Now, did you go gray since the last time I saw you, Claire? Um, it's kind of mixed in. So of course I still have like very expensive visits to the hairdresser, but now she does it in a way where the gray can come in. So it's a mixture of gray and blonde. It looks great. Which is super relaxing as opposed to covering, which I found stressful. Well, what color is your net? I feel like it's I feel like it's less stressful for blondes to cover than it is for I feel like it's for for people with brown hair, it's like a, a major stress. But I feel like if your hair is lighter, it's not as much. What color was your hair originally? Well, not totally sure. I, <laughs> I have been dyeing my hair since I was about 20. <laughs> Uh, various colors. So I'm not entirely sure, but some did come in during the pandemic and it's pretty, it's pretty dark then with, and then salt and pepper. What about you two? I'm, I am over 50% gray now. And my decision is that when I am 100% gray, I will revisit the idea of going gray. Do you think you'll go totally gray or do you think you'll do a shock? No, if I, once my hair is all gray, I can't see not letting it go gray because it is so much work right now. Yeah. You know, it's so much money. It's so much time. I love it. I love dyeing my hair. I've been dyeing it since I was 15 and I love it. I couldn't love it more. I think if you were like a kid who came up through alternative culture or punk rock, there's a way that dyeing your hair was part of who you were as a young person that makes it have a very strange history. So there's this combination of it's a cultural self-expression from when you were young, but then now there's this piece of like, I have to cover up. It's, 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 it's psychically complicated. So let's talk about, so first off, congratulations. Last week, I saw your book on the cover of the, the New York Times book review. The book is getting so much attention. Um, it's it's such a smart, brilliant book for this moment, especially. So this book started out its life as an essay in the Paris Review about the art of bad men. What inspired you to take this sort of deeper book length dive on the book, on, on this topic um, of the art made by bad people, women included, which I was surprised about when I got the book. So what made you want to get into this? Yeah. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. And I am a listener of the podcast. I love it. So I'm honored to be here and happy to be here. Again, a second time visitor. Very proud of that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, one of the very few. I'm. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. But uh, the the book, it was always conceptualized as a book. So I started writing this book in 2015 or 2016. And I had written in my previous book, Love and Trouble, which was a memoir about growing up kind of in the sexually predatory 1970s and 80s. That book took different forms to tell the story. So it was kind of formally experimental. Like there were, you know, there were lists and there were sort of funny kinds of how-to lists and different approaches to the material. And one of the approaches was this open letter to Roman Polanski. So there's that book contained this sort of, I took Roman Polanski as this kind of er example of the predatory man of that era. And I wrote, even though I don't know him personally, and it was a memoir, I like wrote this open letter to him. And in doing that, I researched his crime, his rape of a 13 year old in, in the late seventies. And, um, which was very concurrent with a time when I was predated and molested. So I had done this really uh, very deep research around the crime. And I also had this history of loving his work. And so I realized I had this big problem on my hands, this dilemma of, you know, still wanting to consume the work. And so I always came into it as a book. 
Um, and I started writing on it long before Me Too exploded. And in fact, what was published in the Paris Review was, was conceived of as the first chapter of the book. So I saw it as this opening volley to this longer discussion I was going to be having. And then it sort of appeared on the scene and was taken as its own individual thing. So then right. I was writing in the wake of that, which is very interesting. Experience. Maybe that's more inside baseball than you No, want, I love but. I love that inside baseball. That's no, no, I think not that's so all. important because I think that's really sometimes and I and I think that's why this book works. Sometimes you're stretching writers are stretching an essay over an entire book. It's really interesting to hear you say, I always knew this was a longer exploration. And you were almost like setting up a flare, like, oh, I'm I'm exploring this with this first piece. That's what it sounds like to me. I love inside baseball. I was thinking about um, what, you know, that you mentioned in the book that you go to college campuses and when you go to college campuses, what everyone wants to know is, can I still like David Bowie? And I thought that was interesting because I'm sure people want a really prescriptive answer from you about all of this, but the truth is actually much murkier. Yeah, I like that word. Or truth, that's a weird word to use. Right. Or the, the I've been thinking about this a lot as I've been going out and supporting the book and sort of this question that this dialogue that's kind of built around this core question of what do we do with the art of monstrous men? And I think that, you know, when I published that piece in the Paris Review, it was given that title, what do we do with the art of monstrous men and framed as this question. And of course, it's a very, very good headline, right? It's been reused many times in different, bastardized, used over and over and over in the culture. So I feel very lucky I had this headline that that was so grabby, you know, we're all, we've all been journalists for a long time and we know how important that is. But in some ways, the book was always conceived not as a, as a question, but more as a, a more literary project that was just exploring the landscape of what happens when I love the work and I abhor the crime. What's going on inside of me? What do I see? How do I see other people engaging with this? I was really looking less to prescribe than to describe. So it, that's been kind of an interesting experience where people come to me with like, well, what do we do? What do we do with David Bowie? It's like, mm, I'm not sure I'm your oracle, right? Right, right. right. I'm, I'm more of your observer is, is what I feel my role is. Can you talk about this whole notion of a stain that taints the audience imp audience's impression of a monstrous artist? Yeah, Um. So this idea of the monster came about pretty early in the project. I think that it partly grew from this description we have of these, you know, a person, usually a man who does something kind of or says something kind of rotten. And then that word was sort of part of the discourse around the explosion, the online explosion of Me Too in 2017, right? Like I started to see that word a lot, monster. And I was also interested in the word monster because of the way it comes up in Jenny Offel's book, Jenny Offel, excuse me, Offel's book, Department of Speculation. Mm -hmm. Have you guys read this? I'm one of my favorite no, books. No, I haven't read it. Oh, Kim, you will love it. I, I cannot recommend it to you highly enough. It's incredible. And it's like so fast too. It's And it's like, it's so dense. It's a really amazing book. Yeah. But also the way it's written, she writes it in these little fragments. So it has that quality of moving. There's just this depth to it, but it moves from chunk to chunk really quickly in a way that's completely addictive. It's, it's fun. Um, so she brought up in that book, this idea of the art monster, uh, which was this person who just gets to think about art. So sh she talks about Nabokov and his wife and how she, you know, used to lick stamps for him and carry his umbrella uh, so that he didn't have to think about sort of the quotidian things of the world and could just focus on art. And she's talking about how she yearns to be an art monster in that way. And when that book came out, that became a dialogue with me and between myself and a bunch of my artist or writer friends where we were all like, yes, art monster, that's what I want to be. So there's almost this like positive aspect to the word monster. So when I started writing the book, I was really focused around this kind of central metaphor of the monster, but it didn't take me very long to realize that the kind of othering that occurs with that word, the sort of like that person over there is a monster and that has nothing to do with yeah. me. And the, there was a sort of j'accuse quality to the word that, that started to be a problem for me. And I started to think, I want a different metaphor. I want a different image. And this idea of the stain came to me, this idea that the artist 
has done or said something that affects the work such that we can't see the work without the stain of their biography being on it. And that this stain is most importantly, I think, something that is not chosen by the viewer or consumer or listener of the art. You know, that the we live in this moment where we know too much about the biography of everyone, right? Like that's a very core concept to the book is that we live in a biographical moment. The internet is like this machine fueled by biography. And so we're sort of constantly, biography is just falling on our head. We're just learning about artists all the time. And when we learn something bad, it's not as though we always set out to learn it. It just knowledge sort of happens to us because of the way our media works now. And therefore the work is stained. And I think so often when this, this idea is talked about, this idea of separating the art from the artist, it almost sounds like it's a willful decision on the part of the reader or the viewer or the audience member. Like, you know, you just are supposed to separate the art from the artist. And it's like, well, I don't, I'm not choosing to be affected by what I know about Woody Allen. It, it is just occurring. And so that became really interesting to me. The, the involu- involuntary yeah. nature of the stain was yes. very mm-hmm. interesting to me. I'm not using this. It is happening to me. Yes. So once I came, you know, sort of set us the monster as the central image and went to this idea of the stain, all of a sudden there was a lot of different ways of, there were a lot of different ways of thinking that were open to me. I think one thing that's interesting, so there there are some women in this book, but but for the, you make this very deft observation that our definition of genius, which is a lot of what we're talking about here, right, is the image we summon in our heads is of a man. Can you explain why this is even in 2023 <laughs> for, us, <laughs> for us? Explain it to us. I mean, I think, yes, I think that I'm seeing more uh, women accuse uh, other women of genius. I mean, accuse in a positive way, you know, other women declaiming each other's genius. I think there's starting to be a pushback against that, which is great. It's fantastic. But I do think that this notion of genius, our contemporary notion of genius was I mean, to my mind, it it is male and it is this sort of very free image of someone who is at the whims of his artistic impulses. And there's a way that he's, you know, I think of the image of Jackson Pollock or somebody who's like, it's almost as though there's there's a force larger than himself passing through him and he's just a, he's a servant to it or a conduit to it. And I think that there's a kind of, logical collapse that happens where we we think well if he's subject to one impulse then he he must be you know all of his impulses must be good you know if if his if picasso's impulsiveness brings us this incredible work then then we have to just accept all the impulses that go go with that and i think that this image of the male artist who is free and impulsive and possibly abusive comes from a really specific place. I think it comes from from Picasso and from Hemingway. I think that there's a way that they were, you know, Picasso was the great artist and Hemingway was the great writer of the beginning of the mass market era, mass media era, right? So they both yeah. were involved in like newsreels and being written up in Life magazine and having, not only were they truly great artists, but they also were great architects of their own public image, right? At a moment when public mm-hmm. was ascendant. And so, you know, you think of Picasso and Hemingway as being these examples of a certain kind of male genius. But what I make an argument for is they actually shaped that idea. They actually made mm. the male of the made the image of the male genius in, you know, in the image of themselves. So they're examples of it, but they're also creators of it. And we're kind of living in that aftermath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. arbiters of it. I mean, you look at, I think about, I think so much about David Foster Wallace and how, because it's not, it's not just, just the man genius. It's, it's more of the boy genius. It's the young genius. It's the, you know, there's something mm-hmm. about also the virility of like a young man and his, his genius and, you know, just let him go free in a way that we don't allow women the same right? We don't allow females that that same sort of runway at at all. Not that we should, not that we should ever condone terrible behavior, but I do, I do think there is a, um, there's a, there's a boy genius too. Like, you know, that's even a more specific part of this, this idea of the genius. I I don't know what you think about that, but. 
I was thinking about David Foster Wallace. <laughs> I love David Foster Wallace as an example of that. And I think it's, there is, you know, from, to my mind, the, the sort of true children of Picasso and Hemingway are the men of rock, right? So there's this, if, if the image of the genius, you know, has to do with an absolute freedom that is afforded to a man, then that freedom, you know, sort of reached its apotheosis in the 70s and 80s excesses of rock, where the whole thing is about expressing your freedom on stage. And the freedom itself, you know, in some cases starts to replace the art. Like you think of someone like Motley Crue, like right. they're, they're more about performing the truths of being a rock star than they are about actually, I mean, they have a couple of good songs, right. but actually making music. <laughs> um so I think that that really speaks to what you're talking about, about the boy genius. There's just this this freedom that somehow we want young men to enact. And then there's kind of a an avatar quality to what they're doing, where they're performing freedom. And then we're sort of having an enjoyment of that. Yeah. That is uncomfortable. There, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I know Kanye is problematic at the moment, but he had a kind of great line about wanting to be a rock star that you have in that book. Yeah, that was a really, you know, Kanye's sort of, Kanye's, I think other people have pointed this out, but Kanye's kind of a ghost in this book. He sort of appears and disappears. Yeah. He's had big, a bigger role in the book. He used to, an epigraph of the book used to be a Kanye quote and I took it out because it sort of wasn't mine to, yeah. to use. But I had to keep this quote he had about, he's describing himself as a rock star. And the reason he's a rock star is he he sees the rock star as the ultimate free person. He can be rich. He can be barefoot. He can have he can travel with his wife. He can have sex with groupies. You know, the rock star can express all of this, all of these, this like totality of human experience. And what he's describing is is a white male experience. Right. So can is that available to a non-white, non-male? And and sort of the way that he's saying, I am a rock star, by the end of the quote, he's saying he's not a rock star because he doesn't have that freedom. He's like, they get away with something I don't get away with. And that idea of getting away with something is language that's been used about Picasso. It's, you know, it's something that, that kind of is inherent with this total freedom that these guys have. Let's take a quick break from some ads. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. 
I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned in the book, the whole, no, the, how, 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 I don't know if toxic is the right word, the whole argument that they were of their time is. Yeah. I mean, I came to that question with some skepticism. You know, it was something that I felt like came up a lot when I was looking at this question and, and seemed like when I thought about it, it seemed like kind of a pat response. And so I explore that in a chapter where I talk about Wagner. And Wagner's just truly incredible anti-Semitism. I mean, there's, you know, when you read historical accounts of his life, he was so powerfully anti-Semitic that he would, you know, you'd go to have coffee with him to talk about your plans to like, you know, have him to mount one of his works. And he'd just, that's all he would talk about. You know, there, there, he sort of could never not be talking about in an anti-Semitic way. And when I went and started to read the source material, when I read Judaism and mu music, which is his just like hideous, hideous essay that is about how he perceives Jews, um, what I found was that Wagner actually was aware of the heinousness of what he was saying. Because in the essay, he talks about this idea that liberals don't want us to talk about how our true feelings about Jews. And if we're honest, we would we would say the things that I'm saying, which is completely Trumpian. Yeah. Right. Like I'm mm -hmm. just saying he literally Wagner literally uses the phrase liberal bedazzlements, which prevent us from saying what we really think, um, which is you could hear somebody using that phrase now. And so he's aware of the argument against his own hatefulness, right? He's acknowledging it and then using this very contemporary idea that, well, I'm just speaking the truth. And that really disrupted my idea, the idea that they didn't know better then. You know, this sort of refuge we take in the idea that, that it was the times. And I think that one thing that's really useful about that construct of looking back and being like, well, you know, they didn't know better at the time. It kind of is always paired with this idea of, well, I would have been better at the time, right? right? Like right. as a good person now, if I were to time travel, you know, I'd be a stop on the Underground Railroad or I'd fight the Nazis. And it's like, well, that's just, you know, this incredibly self-satisfied kind of um, ideal of how we would behave. And I think this whole discourse about time, what it brings up for me is what's happening now? right? Take all of the things we're talking about and look at what's happening in the world now. Are you taking a right stance now? Are you doing enough now? Stop telling us how great you would have been in the past or, you know, the sort of idea that somehow you would have known better and know better now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. One thing that I think, like I said, I was surprised um, to see women in here. I don't know why I was, but... Um... You write a fair amount about monstrous artistic women like Anne Sexton and Doris Lessing and how the worst thing a woman can do in our culture's eyes is forsake her children. And yet we all know, those of us who have children, how they can be a mighty impediment to creating art, you know, and also that many women in the past had children against their will or it was just expected of them. And women are still disproportionately maligned for this kind of crime. 
Did you have some sympathy or empathy for those women? How did you sort of think about, when you were thinking about monstrous women, particularly this crime of abandonment and abandoning your children, how did you sort of come, how did you sort of approach that and thinking about it? Was it, did it feel different than the crimes that sort of the men had perpetrated? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I am these women, right? In a, I'm dealing with the same questions of balancing taking care of other people with my own desire to make my work. And these two things are intention, right? So I came to the book as a memoirist, right? I'd written two memoirs before. And I also came to the book as someone who was really trying to assert the power of the subjective response. That's a really foundational idea in the book is that there's not some authority to tell us what to do, that we have to reside in our own experience and our own subjective response. And so in the writing of the book, I was taking both that kind of idea of subjectivity and my own experiences as a memoirist and really trying to tell my own reaction to this stuff, really trying to just reside in my own experience. And because of that, around halfway through the book, it was really important that I stop and say, am I a monster? Yeah. Right. That there's a way in which if you're going to talk about this, talk about your own subjective response, but also just that sort of self-indicting, self-reflection of the memoirist, it's natural to say, am I a monster? And when I looked at, I mean, I think that the answer to that is really complicated, but I realized that my own feelings of inadequacy or failure or monstrousness had to do with failure to nurture. And so obviously right? Like going to work for a woman is not monstrous in the way that, uh, you know, child rape is. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying there's a perception that women who abandon their duties to nurture to go to work, they are maligned. And also that guilt is internalized in me as a mother artist. I, I also thought it was it was interesting that you asked, like, maybe I'm not enough of a monster. Maybe I have to go be more monster. Right? Like it's the 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 question does making art make me a less good mother? That's not a dangerous question, right? Because you're you're sort of like being inside your socially prescribed role of mother. It's like, okay, well is my artist is my my devotion to my art screwing up my motherhood. Well, does making art make me selfish? I think that's, that, sorry, I had to just say, like, does making art make me selfish inherently because I, I want to dedicate, yeah, right? Okay, continue, yeah. Yeah, and so, and I think the more dangerous question is, does being a mother make me a less good artist, right? Like, that's a much less mm-hmm. comfortable question. And it's sort of, okay, I'm going to be over here in this role of artist as my primary identity, and my motherhood might be impinging on my ambition or my, you know, my ability to exert myself in the way I need to to make my work. That's like a very uncomfortable place to be. Or resenting motherhood, resenting motherhood because just resenting motherhood because you don't have enough time to do what you, you know, that, that, those complicated feelings of resenting the, the thing that you actually love and you want to do too, taking care of your children. It's... <laughs> It's real. It's just it. I, I don't. I, I'm wordless on it. <laughs> like it is. <laughs> well, I, think it's like, I think the reason, like, you become wordless on it because the fact is the the fact that care falls to women and mo- you know mostly to women, and that there's an assumption that care falls on the shoulders of women is actually like horrible for both men and women, yeah. right? Like that's not good to have one population doing most of the care. So there's there's a way in which this whole question kind of begs a larger, you know, solution, which is maybe if we could outsource care to everyone, then women wouldn't be left holding this problem in quite the same way, right? It's like if we expand the idea of who can do care, then it becomes not a mother artist problem, but more like a care self problem, which I think that you were pointing at earlier. Yeah. I feel a need to point out, um, even though it takes us, it sort of interrupts the conversation that you, Claire, thanked your children's caregivers in the, um, in the acknowledgements of your book, which I think got a lot of attention when you did it at the time, because it happens so rarely. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say, I, th- I always thought that was very cool. 
Thank you. I was so thrilled that people noticed that. And actually, I didn't thank them in my first book. And it, I was reflecting when I was publishing my second book back on that. And I was like, who really helped me write this yeah. book? It was my kids' caregivers. And there's all kinds yeah. of like problems that come up when you make that acknowledgement about class and hiring other women to help you with your kids. And, you know, there's a, it's a minefield, but it's also you have to, if you don't acknowledge that somebody else helped you take care of your kids, then what happens to the next woman who's writing a book and thinking she's supposed to be able to balance these, That's right. be able to balance these two things on her own. Right. Right. That's right. And I mean, Angela Garbus has done so much good work around all of this, uh, you know, and I know you just, you just met with, I just think that the more we normalize admitting that we need help and that we have help, the, the better we all are, you know, the better off we all are because this is weird. It's not, it's not normal to do this on your own. Right. Exactly. And I think she, she really gets at Angela Garbus and her work really gets at a lot of the racial components of this as well about who is doing care and really looking with a very um, clear eye about what's happening there. Um, and I think that one thing I love about her work is by acknowledging that care falls mostly to women and then even more so mostly to women of color, that the way she writes about that, but then also like lifts up the very concept of caregiving. Yes. She manages to write about all this stuff without saying like, oh, and it's such a bummer we have to do this work. She really comes from the point of view, and this is something that kind of touches on your idea of resentment, that this is actually makes you a happier, better, more connected person to take care of other people. Like this is, this is a good thing, but because it, it gets sort of framed in this negative way because of who's done it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit because, you know, this is a show about being in, in middle midlife and being older than that. And I just wonder, you know, do you think you could have written this book when you were younger? Oh, that's a great question. Absolutely not. I mean, I think that I don't, I think that there's, uh, it seems like the self-involvement of memoir, you know, like it seems like when you go to write a memoir, there's, it takes a certain kind of uh, um, confidence or brio to be like, okay, I'm going to tell about my life for 200 pages or whatever. But this is even a step beyond that. This isn't even, I'm not even really giving you a story. All I'm doing is thinking on the page for a couple hundred pages mm -hmm. and that is a really scary thing to do, especially because I keep, you know, in the book, I really refuse authority. I keep on saying, you know, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm like, I'm being inside my own subjective perspective. I don't, I absolutely don't think that's something I could have done as a younger woman. It took a lot of, um, it was really scary. I mean, it says it was a scary book to write in that way. Like, will people go with me? Is it so yeah. outrageous to kind of, um, you know, there's a something, um, do you know the monologist, uh, Mike Daisy? I don't no. even use, I think that word is said differently, monologue. I don't know. Anyway, he does monologues. <laughs> okay. Anyway, he has talked <laughs> about this idea that it's harder to be a female performer of monologues, just to do an end run around that word, because people don't want to listen to a woman's voice for an hour or two. And I think that there was some of that feeling in writing this book. Does somebody want to listen to my voice for the hours it takes to consume this work? So I think as a younger woman, I would have just gotten completely spooked by that idea and not done it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Right. Do you think you could have written this book without elements of um, memoir in it? Um, I think because so much of what I was trying to say was about taking power away from an authority and returning it to the audience member, right? Returning it to each person and saying, what's your experience, both of your relationship to the crime, but also your relationship to the work? Like, what do you love? What's important to you? This is, this is how we answer this question is individually. And because that idea of, of disrupting authority and valorizing subjectivity was so at the center of the book, I felt like memoir was really important. I felt like it was really right. important to include my own story so that there was a formal expression of the content of the book. So it was always going to be part of it. And it was like finding what that balance was. I, I want to ask, I have to ask, you know, you, you're, you made the New York Times bestseller list in short order. Your, your book has been reviewed Wait, no, no, rapturously. No, I'm not on the New York Times bestseller list. 
national bestseller. Just, oh, you're wrong. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I don't want to have stolen valor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. You've made, you've made, but you, it's the book is a bestseller and it's been reviewed just gleefully everywhere. What does that feel like? You know, I'm dissociating. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. I'll report back in six months. I'm completely, you know, I don't feel like I'm out of my mind, but I do feel like I'm completely dissociated from the whole experience. I had so much, so much anxiety about publishing this book for so long. Yeah. Um, there was attention on the original essay. The topic is really volatile. I was taking a really um, like fragile perspective from just a very narrow, from committing to my own point of view. I've been so nervous and scared about publishing this book. And I'm just a very anxious person. And so like having all this positive response come back, I'm just, you know, it's like, I'm just experiencing it at the most shallow level so far. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. You're just like, you're in the middle, like totally, it makes sense. Like you can't, you can't really see it. There's like, you know, you're like, oh, my name's there. You, you can't process it until later because you're just also, you're also in promotion mode, which is like being, I imagine for me, it's always like, I'm performing all the time. So like you, there's <laughs> like, yeah. especially you're a writer and like you spent most of your time alone and then suddenly you have to be like, da 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 tap dancing. Suddenly, suddenly you have, Jen and I refer to something as famous days. Actually, I didn't invent that. I think Jen and her husband invented that. Days when just like, you know, there is a piece about you or you posted something especially viral on social media and you're just having a million famous days right in a row. How can that not be disorienting? Well, I, and I think that it is, it is disorienting. And I think that I feel of course, incredibly lucky. And I have two thoughts. One is that I think it kind of goes to some of the stuff I'm talking about in the book, which is all of these category errors and emotional confusions we have around the internet and how so much of our engagement with social media and the internet creates these this like very with these emotions that we sort of don't know what to do yeah. with like that's a lot of what the book is dealing with we're having emotions about people we don't know yes right which is just that's kind of at the core of the book so i'm having this emotional experience of the book going out and being reviewed or being in the world being online and it's how do you I don't think, you know, I think our, our social media presence or our online presence is so far ahead of how we can process something like that emotionally or physically or in any of those ways. And that's a lot of what I'm writing about. The other thing is that you both know this, that anytime you have something positive happen in your career, and I'm knocking wood while I'm talking to you, <laughs> all it's making you think about is the potential to do what you want in the future. Yes. So when I hear something being really positive. I'm so thrilled and grateful the book has connected with other with people and they're getting it and they're that they're reading it in good faith that I'm not having so many bad faith. Mm -hmm. People yes. are really coming to the book on its own. You know, that's really exciting. But also now I can think about, well, well, what does this mean in terms of um, how much weirder or more um, obscure can I be in my next yes work? yeah no no of course you can now now's your time to do the difficult sophomore album exactly that's not really your sophomore okay, but, album but, but wait but wait yes, yes and that does suck <laughs> uh, absolutely because when something some people love something you're like ah how do I how do I create that sauce again but a different different ingredients for the sauce but it'll taste as good to people disaster but wait okay speaking of all your books because I think this is really interesting you know, Love and Trouble is this midlife reckoning, and it came out in 2017. And six years later, I'm just wondering, how have you reconciled some of the feelings you wrote about in that book? Because those feelings of like recklessness in your 40s, of impatience, of reawakening, the desire for a jailbreak, where did, where did they go? Yeah. I mean, I think that I could write a follow-up to that book because so much has happened since then. I yeah. mean, I became sober. I became divorced. I've been through, you know, I'm in this time where I'm I'm really involved in my kid's life in a way that I wouldn't have expected when I when we were all, you know, 
at home together. I have a really nice relationship with my ex-husband. I'm in a relation. I have a partner. Like, I feel like I've sort of, and I've nursed my father through his death and been through all of the political stuff we've been through. So I feel like there's been so much upheaval basically since that book was published, like yeah. almost every day. Yeah. And I think that that desire for jailbreak is, um, I think it was really real and I'm really glad I wrote about it and captured that moment. Mm -hmm. But I've lived through so much tumult. I feel like every day is like, you know, such a massive upheaval right now and has been for so long that the the problems of that book seem almost quaint in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. in my life that I was fighting yeah. against. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Sure. I mean, it, it does answer my question. I mean, I have this idea and then I want Kim to go, don't lose your thought, Kim. I, I, I think that your forties, I, I, I think what you just said is, is quaint because I think the forties and fifties are such massively distinct decades. And because most of our listeners are in their forties and fifties, I think it's, I, I, in my forties, I felt ornery in a way. And like precipice, like I was waiting for something. It felt like a death of something. And I, I feel like I was just catastrophizing all shit that actually wasn't that real, to be honest, right? The catastrophizing, like the end of my youth. Okay. And like, it turned out it didn't fucking matter at all. Like the end of my youth didn't matter at all. Like that, like that, that wasn't actually as significant as I was giving it significance in most of my forties. And, um, I don't know. Just I just turned 50 a couple of weeks ago, but I can already feel like a shift because I've sort of let go of a lot of that. And now there's all kinds of new real shit to deal with, but I I just think it's it's interesting. I think I think you're you seem even in since your last podcast appearance here, you seem like a more settled person just in who you are. And I I just think that's interesting because we don't you're having more success than you've ever had. I think we get so much better and I guess that's what I'm I'm getting to somehow and I was I was hoping to lead you there somehow. <laughs> I think that there is and I I feel like I talked about this last time I was on the podcast but just at at the risk of repeating myself. One thing I never wrote about in Love and Trouble but I've thought about a lot is I was talking to a friend who runs Everest expeditions. So he takes people up the mountain, right? Mm -hmm. And he says that the absolute worst people to take up a mountain are women in their 40s and men in their 60s, because those are the people who are going to push to go to the top. They're the people who are going to make the bad decision and push the guide to make a bad decision. And which I thought was fascinating. Wow. And because people in both those eras are confronting, you know, they're, they're in this moment where they're no longer genetically viable. Like they're facing their own mortality in terms of their ability to reproduce and their sort of sudden realization of their own kind of mortality and irrelevance. And so I think that there is something that's happening in your forties for me that I was trying to write about in that, in the book where I did kind of come to have this really powerful sense of the void that it was yeah. there, that it was going to end, that I yeah. was railing against it and aware of it and kind of obsessed with it. Frankly, I was sort of thinking about it all the time. And, yeah. and that kind of dynamic is what the book came out of. And I feel like now, first of all, like I reside much more in that place where I have that knowledge that that's ahead of me. Like I am now in middle, middle age where I, you know, or where I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm aware that I am, as my granny used to say, OBT on borrowed time. Yeah. So it's, it's not sort of reckoning with that for the first time. And I think, I do think that makes me more settled. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think that kind of gives you more, like, do you get used to that idea of being on borrowed time or? I think I'm used to it and at this, but unhappily used to it. Yeah. You know, it, it's, I've had people die recently, contemporaries, mm -hmm. you know, and that just, that just really throws it for me. I, I think yeah. that, well, you saying on borrowed borrow time made me want to cry just off, just on thinking about it. But I, I think that it's the push pull of the, um, oh God, I'm on borrowed time. I gotta, I gotta race and get so much done. Oh my God, I'm on borrowed time. And, oh fuck, I have to actually slow down and enjoy this and really be present for this. So for me, it's just like, it's a, 
it's a, it's a little bit of an internal struggle at all times because it's like, I want to do so many things, but I also want to chill out and just, you know, enjoy the pleasures of being alive. So I think it's, I think it's really complicated. But, but can't chilling out and enjoying the pleasures of being alive be part of what the knowledge of being on borrowed time is all about? Yeah, but it's like, it's, it's hard to be in productivity mode. Like how many more things do I want to make as a, as a, as an artist? How much more do I want to do? No, no, no. I understand that. I'm just saying it's superior to chill. Yeah, I don't know. It was kind of, oh, a, it, was, oh, it was a joke, sort of. I didn't get it. I'm sorry. But that, that means sorry. it failed as a joke. It was a joke sorry, that sorry, failed Sarah, to no, be funny. Now we're, in, now we're in friend therapy over here. I'm sorry. No, I love it. Yeah, you guys work on your communication skills with each other. <laughs> sorry to drag you into that. But right. I want to ask you, you wrote this book at least partially during COVID. What was that like? Well, I mean, I had such a, everybody, one thing that was incredible about COVID was how just unbelievably uh, we, how self-involved we all became at the, at the weirdness and specialness of each of our own COVID situation. I mean, so I will say like, Mm -hmm. I had a very weird COVID situation, but we all did, which was sort of a strange experience to look back on. But I my husband and I told our kids that we were divorcing in the in January of 20 or December of 2019. And then we were all going to kind of cohabit in our house together. One child was at college, um, you know, until kind of later that year, that was just the plan. We were all getting along fine and this was just going to be okay. And then all of a sudden we were all quarantining together. Oh my God. So Mm. One kid came back from college. So it was both kids, me and my soon to be ex-husband. So I was in the middle of of COVID trying to write this book, living in this just, and I know many listeners probably have been through similar things if they've been through divorce, where there's just finances and circumstances often mean that you end up having to live in these really just wacky ways. And so for me, COVID, so much of it, was surviving that situation. And I wish I could say, I mean, I wrote through the whole time, but I became very uncentered in my writing practice during that period. It was just physically very, very difficult to get any work done because of that. For so many people, yeah. There were so many people and the the everybody was kind and did their best and really did a great job, but there were so many psychodynamics in play. So I wouldn't say I lost that year, but it was really destabilizing as a writer. Yeah. And then the next year, my father died and I was caring, him, caring for him um, throughout that. So again, there was a lot of instability in COVID, COVID for me, even though it was so frustrating because it's like, we're all staying home. Why aren't I getting more done? Yes. Did you guys have that experience? Yes. Yeah. Um, Claire, what do you still, what's, what's next for you? Mm. I... Uh, I don't know. I don't know, which is (laughs) kind of exciting, right? I mean, like I said, I think that having the book read, as I said, in good faith and so generously makes me feel really excited for writing something much weirder next time. Yeah. Well, it's exciting to see you in a position to write your own ticket, Claire. It really is. And I couldn't be happier for you. Congratulations about this book. It's just so, so great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I think you're the best. I'm so glad you came on and talked to us. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are the best. And I could have happily spent an hour just talking about hair. I really tried. I really tried. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Before we go, where can people find you, Claire? Because we obviously want them to find you. I think the best place to find me is Instagram. I'm really avoiding Twitter. Um, and besides that, I have just a couple more events and then there will be some online stuff for the book, but find me, read the book, read the book. Absolutely. Yes, by all means. The book, read the book. It's the link will be in the show notes to the book, buy the book, read the book. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Claire. Thanks for listening to everything is fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. 
If you like the show, please rate and review it across the platforms. It really makes a difference. If you want to support the production of the show, we are on Patreon. We are doing lots and lots of things on Patreon. It is patreon.com backslash everything is fine. It's probably just slash. If you want to support the show on or follow the show on social media, we're on Instagram at EIF podcast. We're on Facebook with a robust and private Facebook group. We're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. You can email us if you have feedback at everything is fine. The podcast at gmail.com. You can find Kim on her blog, girls of a certain age.com. You can find me on tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. The show is mixed and edited by the wonderful, wonderful Natalie Rivera. And we will be back next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.